Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. With me this week, we've got a whole passel of uh, Adweek staffers, a big old room full, because we have so much to talk about. Uh, very excited to welcome back uh, TV and media editor Jason Lynch. Jason, how are you? Hey, great to be here. Also back, we've got Lisa Lacey, a tech reporter here at Adweek. Lisa, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? And Sammy Nichols, the department editor here at Adweek. Uh, Sammy, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be on the podcast for the first time. Well, yeah, this is your first episode, isn't it? I, was, I couldn't believe that we had never <laughs> had you on. Uh, so, yeah, really excited to have you. And also back is Patrick Coffey, senior editor on the Agency Speed, who has a whole lot to talk about. Patrick, good to have you on. Uh, thanks, David. We've got so much news uh, to talk about in the agency world this week. We've got our annual hot list of the hottest uh, kind of brands and people and uh, products in digital, in publishing, in television. Uh, so we're going to get to that. Uh, but first, let's dive into the news. All right, so we are recording this the Friday uh, before it airs, and man, what a bad week it's been for WPP, the largest holding company in advertising, uh, several very large client losses uh, and some just kind of embarrassing losses, even if the finances aren't quite as bad. And this comes, you know, not too long after uh, naming of a new CEO. You know, they lost their longtime, well, or they parted with their longtime CEO and their founder, Sir Martin Sorrell, uh, several months ago in a very high-profile kind of split. And uh, he has gone on to launch a, a new competitor, uh, basically. And uh, so, yeah, just uh, very recently named Mark Reed as their new CEO. I, I feel like it was just uh, just last month, right, Patrick? Yeah, it's been about a month. Yeah, and if he has more uh, more weeks like this, he's probably not going to totally love this job. Uh, I'm going to give some broad strokes here. Then, Patrick, you can fill us in on the details. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, several high-profile client losses for WPP. Uh, but let's talk about one of the biggest ones, Ford. This was, had been a client for 75 years uh, with the agency that is, is now called GTB. 
Uh, it goes back to when the account was first won in 1943 by JWT. Uh, JWT was acquired uh, by WPP in 1987, and today they're running that business through uh, through a, a company called GTB. It's basically an agency that WPP created just to service uh, this Ford account. And, uh, and yeah, they are moving much of that account over to creative agency BBDO, which is owned by Omnicom, and, uh, and they're giving uh, some other work to Wyden and Kennedy. Uh, they will retain some of the work, some of the back-end revenue-generating work, but, whew, yeah, this is, a, uh, this is a, a big black eye for WPP. Patrick, tell us a bit about this review and, and kind of what went into it. Well, it, it was really fascinating and convoluted and, and kind of unexpected, honestly. It was... Um, the review was a big, just the very fact that it went into review was bad news for WPP because Ford is their largest client globally. They have um, something like 20 offices around the world that service Ford. GTB is a dedicated agency, meaning Ford is their only client. Um, it's been that way for, I think, um, uh, for quite a few years, but you're correct that J. Walter Thompson first signed with Ford back in the 40s, uh, promoting the, I believe it was the T-model, um, right around uh, World War II, and they've been working with them ever since. And they have been the lead creative, so, you know, essentially all the Ford advertising you saw was created by uh, WPP, and that's no longer going to be the case. They surprised a lot of people by choosing BBDO as their lead creative agency, and that followed um, by a few weeks after them announcing that Wyden and Kennedy would be producing their new big fall campaign, which was also kind of a surprise. We knew that Wyden was involved in the pitch, and that um, the the reason for that was that Wyden um, had a bit of a hole in their client roster. They had no auto client. Uh, you probably know that they did a lot of work for Chrysler, Probably you best know their Super Bowl ads, the one with the um, uh, the one with the Eminem and the Clint Eastwood one the, from a few years ago that were uh, that were pretty big. But then um, Chrysler kind of dumped them, as it were, and uh, so they needed an auto client, and they picked up this assignment, which is basically going to be the the campaign in the fall that's trying to reintroduce people to the Ford brand. And there was some speculation as to whether they might pick up uh, more of the work. But, uh, you know, Wyden compared to GTB is, is a relatively small agency as, as you know, as um, renowned as they are, et cetera. And I think the general impression is that they didn't quite have the global scale to handle uh, all the intricacies of of this Ford account, and nor did they really necessarily want to. Um, and it's it's notable that WPP did retain a lot of the work. They they kept the media um, buying and planning. They kept the activation. They kept shopper marketing, web development, um, ads for tier two dealers. So essentially, like the stuff that what they would call kind of uh, below the line or the, the they, they're not going to be making the big ads anymore, but they're still going to be, this is the majority of the revenue that comes from the Ford business, but it's still a big black eye for them. And they're going to have to be doing some restructuring in Detroit. And I think it, it also surprised a lot of people that Omnicom won. There were a bunch of reports that 
the client was not necessarily leaning toward them, but it was pretty clear that Ford wanted to make a change. And if you look at other um, reports around Ford's business in general, uh, they've been selling more trucks in the U.S. than ever before, and yet their stock is at nearly an all-time low, and their credit is near junk status. And the reason is that people just don't Investors don't trust the company that the company is is advancing quickly enough in terms of things like electric cars, self-driving cars. You know, they just they don't think that that they're um, moving into the future um, quickly enough. And, and I think that's part of the reason that they wanted to make a change in their in their marketing. And it's part of the reason why uh, just the very fact that they put the business in review was not a good sign for WPP. So it's it's a big win for Omnicom, um, and but symbolically, it's probably the biggest loss for for WPP. But it it really did start with GSK last week, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, which is one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and their business had been with um, Mediacom, and they had launched a global media review, and they ended up consolidating with Publicis. Uh, which is a loss for both WPP and Omnicom. And that one was uh, kind of interesting, a, a little subtle too, because it turns out that they are taking the media planning portion, which is the most lucrative part of the business, in-house. So it turns out that the publicist win is maybe not as big as it might seem. But again, it's it's a loss for WPP. And it's kind of just, it's really terrible timing because it comes not only right after Mark Reed was announced as the new CEO, but after he made his first big moves, which were to uh, announce the merger of the uh, digital agency VML and the traditional creative agency YNR to create the uh, mouthful VML YNR. Yeah, I, I mean, I just have to say, I, I I know a lot of people at both VML and YNR. Had a lot of friends, that, you know, people I consider friends there. But uh, so I'm not being mean when I say this. But VML YNR is just a bad name. Uh, that is just, who, not a good name. Well, it's just you know, I, I I think they just thought that it was the natural way. I mean, as they, <laughs> as as their CEO said to us, I mean, we could come up with some name like Laser Frog, but I mean. Would that really be any better? Um, so I, I, it's not necessarily that I don't really have a problem with the name, but um, I think that it, it just the timing is very unfortunate. And then um, the American Express news dropped right after Ford, uh, which is another big one because Mindshare, which is part of WPP's Group M, had that business for 20 years. And then there was another sense that uh, Amex just named a new CMO earlier this year, and there was another sense that, that they wanted to make a change in their marketing. And sure enough, they, they uh, went to IPG, and they just you know, dropped WPP entirely. So it's, it's another one that, that it's, they've lost a lot of revenue there. And, and Amex is another company that's, that's struggling in some ways, but they're still a big spender. Um, and the same, the same is true of United Airlines. Uh, and this one is one where uh, WPP did retain a bit of the work. Um, Wonderman, which had been the incumbent on the media um, planning and buying, is still going to be handling the production. But again, they lost that, that crucial part because it's like, it, it's easy for us to forget that when we, when we cover the creative campaigns and stuff that the part of advertising that really brings in the most money is actually planning and placing the ads. 
and uh, that's that's why one why this news is has been bad for WPP. Well, let's put it this way. There's going to be a lot of media agency talent up for grabs right now around the world. Yeah, you mentioned VML YNR. They are uh, part of this. Uh, so they lost uh, quite a bit of work. So the, again, as we mentioned, this combined agency owned by WPP, uh, they lost quite a bit of work from PepsiCo uh, just the other day, right? Tell, tell us about that. That was that was another big one that just dropped yesterday. I, although the news... Um, the the agency was alerted to that earlier this week, but we uh, you know we broke the news yesterday that um, PepsiCo had VML was a digital first agency, and that was this is significant because Mark Reed's whole point in merging VML with YNR is that his vision moving forward for WBP is that they have to combine their traditional creative offering with this underlying digital uh, you know and digital and data focus. And VML has always been digital. And um, Pepsi was one of its largest, if not its largest client. Uh, They had been working on Gatorade in their Kansas City headquarters for eight years, and they won Tropicana, I believe, four and a half years ago. So this was um, is going to be a big blow to them, and it comes like at exactly the wrong time, which is right about two weeks after the merger was announced. So it's it's you know going to be it's going to be another challenge for them. Okay, so just to recap, because I know we've been talking about a lot of different agency names, but in the end, you know, all these are that we're talking about, they're owned by the same company. It's WPP. Uh, so just kind of go back and, and cover some of the ground we, we just talked about. You've got GTB, the agency that's been working, that's been dedicated to Ford and traces its roots back 75 years. A lot of that work lost uh, to BBDO, uh, owned by a rival company. Uh, you've got Amex consolidating its global business and moving that to a to a media company owned by rival company IPG. Uh, you've got PepsiCo moving its digital work away from BML YNR. You've got United uh, sending its global media to Dentsu. I mean, just so much bad news uh, for WPP here. Patrick, if you're Mark Reed, are, are you thinking right now like, you know, uh, hey, I've only been here a month. Uh, I, this isn't on me, or you know, or like what do you? How do you think he's he is is thinking about this right now? And and you know, what's he need to be doing uh, w- with all this? Well, I mean, I would guess. Uh, I mean, the, I know that there was this week also happens to be the week that all the WPP executives had a meeting in New York, and they were talking, as I understand it, about. Reed's plans for the company. And I think the question is, uh, was VML YNR the first of many such moves? And will there be, uh, there, there's a sense moving forward that, that um, companies like Wonderman that are focused more on the digital, more on the data, will sort of be the support for WPP moving forward. And I think that, that what has been happening kind of reinforces that. And that maybe this will uh, give them a sense that they need to move faster on that front. But this is complete speculation on my part. Um, we'll, it will be very interesting to see because I, I do think, though, that there will be greater pressure on him now um, to make to to have more concrete things that they can they can point to and say, "Here's another move that that we're making uh, in terms of streamlining, simplifying." Um, it's just like on the client side. Everyone wants to reduce costs. 
um, everyone wants to focus on their most valuable offerings. And I, I don't see that changing at all. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to check out adweek.com. Uh, Patrick Coffey has so many stories about these and keep an eye on it for, uh, you know, Patrick's team does amazing coverage of this kind of news. Uh, so definitely check it out. Patrick, uh, we'll let you go about your day. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, David. All right. Now we're going to move on to the next segment of our show, Ads Worth Watching. All right. This week, um, we've got Barbie. Uh, so for those who have not been following uh, the Barbie transformation in the recent years, it's actually been uh, kind of one of the most incredible uh, you know, brand turnarounds or modernizations, however you want to look at it. Uh, they've really been, uh, you know, Barbie is a brand with quite a bit of baggage. I, I think they, their official party line is, you know, that we've always been about empowering uh, girls to pursue ambitious careers. Uh, you know, a line you hear the uh, Barbie team mention is that, you know, Barbie ran for president before Hillary Clinton did. Barbie was an astronaut before Sally Ride was. You, you know, it's they, they mention these things. But, uh, Sammy, what would you say growing up was your perception of Barbie? I, I think that, you know, I, I understand their point there. Um, and it was, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I did kind of get the impression that Barbie could do anything. Barbie could have any career she wanted. But it really feels like the real priority was to make her pretty. Like that was that was really what girls did was, you know, buy all the fancy outfits for her. And uh, there's also, of course, the super negative body image sort of baggage surrounding her where, you know, if – if her proportions were a real human, she wouldn't be able to stand and walk around. So I think they can say that, and that's fair. I get that. Uh, but they can't erase all of the other negative stereotypes surrounding the past of Barbie. Um, but it's, it's good that they're trying. I mean, it's props to them for trying. Yeah, and I think they've, you know, it's like the first few years there was a lot of um – understandable skepticism and I think worthy skepticism of whether is this just kind of, um, you know, whatever the equivalent of greenwashing for something like this is, you know, are we just basically saying, no, now we're a feminist brand, but we're not going to change our products, you know. Uh, And recently, actually, the day this ad broke, we also had a story about they created a Barbie for the new uh, Doctor Who, uh, which is the first female Doctor Who. They've created one recently for Dana Scully and also one for Fox Mulder. Uh, Jason, I, I think the the argument one might make there is that those are more collector's items, though, than like the the day to day, you know, ones that you're going to see in in a. I was about to say in Toys R Us, whatever the existing toy stores left <laughs> are. Right. Yeah. My 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 daughter certainly would not be asking for a Dana Scully Barbie. Um, <laughs> although in five years, when she watches the X Files, maybe she will. But yeah, that 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 those are not those are not for kids. Those are for fans of those shows. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing many many of those will never get taken out of their boxes. Uh, but still. I think, you know, it's seeing it there. There are sections now of the Barbie website, like called Inspiring Women, uh, where there's a Barbie for Amelia Earhart and there's a Barbie for Frida Kahlo. And, and there's um, uh, I remember who the third one is. Uh, uh, it's a NASA scientist. And, and so, you know, there's they're, they're doing, you know, they're 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 investing in some new product. But I think where you've really seen it is in their marketing, uh, which has been with BBDO. Uh, ad agency has been doing some pretty stellar work for Barbie in the last few years. Uh, for International Day of the Girl, uh, which was this past week, 
they rolled out a spot a few days in advance of it uh, called the Dream Gap. Uh, and if that's an existing term, I had never heard that. I, I'm not sure if they co- – I think they coined it just for this. But they define it as kind of the the gap between girls' potential uh, and – you know, what they're really allowed by society to embrace and become. Uh, So let's just listen to some of the audio. The entire ad is just uh, young women uh, talking to, I mean, very young girls talking to the camera and kind of just describing some of the issues that hold them back. Let's talk about the dream gap. What's that? It's the gap that comes between girls and their full potential. You see, starting at age five, girls stop believing they can be presidents, scientists, astronauts, big thinkers, engineers, CEOs, and the list goes on. Why? Because what else are we going to believe? When we are three times less likely to be given a science-related toy. That's sad. And when our parents are twice as likely to Google, is my son gifted? Then is my daughter gifted? That's not cool. We need to see brilliant women being brilliant and see how they got to where they are. To imagine ourselves doing what they do. But we can't do it alone. So, you know, several of the the points that they raised really uh, stuck with me. Uh, One is, you know, we are three times less likely to be given a science-related toy, uh, that parents are twice as likely to Google, is my son gifted uh, than is my daughter gifted? I actually looked up the source on that one, and it's even more depressing. It was this... uh, a Harvard-educated economist did an analysis of Google search results about things parents search for, and it's like parents are way more likely to Google questions about their daughter's attractiveness and appearance and things like that than they certainly aren't, and weight. Uh, they are very likely to search for you know tips or questions about their daughter's weight, but not for sons, even though sons have a higher rate of, of uh, being overweight and obese. And so, you know, Honestly, if they each of the each of the lines that they quote in this ad is is like the tip of an iceberg of issues that you could really dig into, and I'm sure that was kind of the point of this ad. Uh, Lisa, did you get a chance to watch it? What did you think of it? I did, I did, I liked it. Um, I mean, what I think is most interesting is that it wasn't that long ago when um, brands sort of tried to steer clear of voicing any any opinions on issues one way or the other. And so much has changed so quickly. And, you know, we have, like, uh, the Nike ad with, with Colin Kaepernick and how divisive that was. And, and just you really see a lot more brands coming out now and sort of planting a flag and, and saying this is what we stand for. Uh, Sammy, given your perception of Barbie growing up, I mean, do you think that ads like this are – you know, are they making a difference? Are they able to kind of turn around a perception of, you know, because a lot of the people who are having kids now are the ones who grew up, you know, in this kind of 80s, not necessarily golden age, (laughs) the Barbie perception. Yeah, I think like with a lot of issues, it's important to kind of look at it from both perspectives of like, of course, this is partially a trend. Like the it's not like the Barbie brand is doing this um, just to, you know, try to make the world better. It's also just becoming part of uh, what it's like to be a brand now is that you can't just be silent on these issues. You can't just uh, be quiet about these sorts of things. Um, and I think that it is also partially damage control because the Barbie brand has got so much uh, blowback for this, uh, over, especially over the past decade or so. 
Um, but at the same time, I do think it is really important to make these changes and try to uh, move forward from this because whether, you know, no matter what, there's going to be little girls who are going to be growing up with Barbie. So if they can make these changes now, they might be able to foster uh, a more a more positive sort of mental health for um, these young girls who are growing up with Barbie. So I think it's important that they're doing this, but I also think that we should, you know, look at this is not not a pat them too hard or too much on the back um, because clearly they are doing a little bit of damage control for this. You know, it's interesting that you haven't really seen another brand rise up. I mean, the only one that really comes to mind is Goldie Blocks, uh, and that was kind of a, a mixed bag of you know a replacement. You would think that. If Bar- you know Barbie would just kind of fall out of favor, and new brands would come up that were a little more modern, and there's been some of that, uh, you know, in the sense of like you've got the the My Little Pony kind of human uh, equivalents. I forget what they call those, but you know where they that that kind of became a more popular uh, preteen toy that's a little less less mired and kind of uh, sexist, uh, you know, tropes and baggage. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's I, I think the toy industry is just so universally controlled by these, you know, mega companies of Mattel and such that we just haven't seen room for. And so it kind of is up to folks like Barbie. Jason, I, I'm curious, you know, is this something you've seen change uh, in the years for you of, of kind of what toy options are available for you as a parent? Um, not really, because it's still, I, I think that one thing that has been constant with Barbie, even through all these iterations, is that your kids are either into it or they're not. And it just depends, like there there's, you know, obviously there's, there's levels of that, but my daughter was into it for a little bit and then kind of not so much. She moved on to other things and, you know, she comes, she came back every once in a while, but, um, I still feel like it's, uh, and and I saw that with my sister when, when we were growing up that, you know, some, some of her friends were really into it and some of them that weren't as much. So even though kind of the thinking behind Barbie and the brand has changed, I still feel, and, and I think probably what, what the brand means to, to girls has, has changed a bit. I still feel like their actual relationship with them when it comes to playing with quote unquote, playing with Barbie is, is, has been fairly constant throughout the years. The, one of the other ads uh, that they made that was a pretty big hit was called, I think dads play with Barbie or dads who play with Barbie, and it was just a spot featuring exactly what you think. It was, you know, dads playing with their Barbie. And it was one of those ads where I, I think several of us joke about this on Twitter where it's like, wait, wait, we need to applaud this. Like, this is so, you, you know, it's like, it's great. It's it's like when one of those stories come out, it's like, this boss felt so bad about their employee having to walk 40 miles to work every day that they gave them their used car. And people are always like, but what does that say about us? <laughs> and I, I just kind of felt that way where I'm like, it's like when people say, like, look at this dad. He reads to his kids. What a hero. <laughs> and I'm just like, wait, are we really that rare? And I mean, the sad reality is that a lot of people were like, this is a great example. This is a great role model. And I mean, the truth is like, my parents are great, but they didn't, you know, they didn't play with me as a kid. It was just a different time. And, and so I think like my, you know, my my mother-in-law, God bless her, she like lectures my kids about this when they'll be like, I'm bored. You're not playing with me enough. And she's just like, do you know what parents used to do with kids? Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't <laughs> even look at you. <laughs> And so it's, you know, it's uh, it's just a, an interesting different time, but it was kind of funny seeing that one. I was like, wow, how crazy dads playing with their children. But, you know, good role models. All right. Well, we are going to uh, move on to our big discussion of the week because I want to make plenty of time to talk about this year's hot lists. And, uh, yeah, let's get to it. 
All right, uh, it's time for the hot list. You know, honestly, I can't remember how long. The hot list's been going a long time, um, and we've kind of changed it up a little bit each year. Uh, sometimes we have a reader's choice that runs alongside of it. Some years we've broken it up into, you know, digital. We've run it at different times. This year we've got it all together. Um, I don't think we had the reader's choice. I think we're going to do that maybe at the end of the year. Jason, do you know the status of that? Um, I believe that the readers do not have a choice. <laughs> Sorry, readers. <laughs> Live with it. <laughs> um, well, you can find Jason on Twitter. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so let's talk. Uh, let's start with TV. Um Jason, walk us through. Uh, some of these are going to be, as with all things Hot List, each of these is going to be divisive in its own way. Uh, so I encourage everyone, uh, we, will, we will all kind of weigh in on, on some of our thoughts. But I have to ask, what made The Big Bang Theory the show of the year? All right. So I'll, well, I'll start off by saying, you know, timing wise, um, this year, the Hollis was was in, uh, a little earlier. Usually it's toward the end of the year. This year, it's still kind of the end, but it's still located at the, almost the very beginning of the new season. So this list is perhaps doesn't reflect um, the new season of TV that's just started as much as, as other ones have. But that said, Big Bang Theory was kind of the no, no-brainer choice for show of the year, um, in part, two big reasons. First off, um, it's going into its, its final season this year. And it's going to its final season this year, still being the number one show on broadcast TV. Um, as it was last season, and it can still draw audiences of somewhere around 16, 17 million, which shows just cannot do anymore. And not only does it perform well in its original episodes, but it performs well in repeats, both on CBS and then in syndication on TBS. So you have a show that for several years now has basically been doing heavy lifting for two networks and helping to keep them um, you know, on, on top kind of in, in their respective um, areas. And uh, there's, you used to have back in the day, a lot of shows that could do this. You know, Friends was a show that Seinfeld, these shows would do well in syndication and also in original episodes. And that just doesn't happen as much anymore. So, so Big Bang Theory is kind of a, is, is, is probably the last of its kind. So it just felt like uh, it was, it was, continue to be the show of the year for for its final year on the air. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point to, to say it's kind of this not just like a, a last, you know, the last dinosaur stomping around. I mean, it's doing very well. Um, but it really is just this kind of you know, it harkens back to a different era uh, of of what TV was. Uh, you know, that said, Lisa, what was your show of the year if you had to if you got to pick? Boy, um That's a tough one. Um let me see. I'm trying to to think through what's uh, on my on my list of of shows to watch at home right now. Um, I was I was excited uh, to see Murphy Brown come back, but I don't know. It's I, I feel kind of lukewarm about it now that I've seen it. Um, I like uh, boy. This is a tough one. <laughs> I feel like I watch a lot of stuff on HBO, and I can't think of anything on HBO right now. Um, I, I like that Jim Carrey show, Kidding. Um, I, I think that has some potential, although I feel like he's maybe gonna um, do something dark, and then and then I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know, but um, that's that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Sammy, you got a good pick. Uh, I actually have two, and they're both NBC. Um, one of them, The Good Place. I feel like I have 
not been able to hear, like I haven't been able to go a day without hearing somebody mention The Good Place or make a joke about it or talk about like how they brilliantly turned the show around, especially because they had that big plot twist that I won't give away in case any listeners haven't seen it. And I had no idea where they were going to go with it, what they were going to do. And uh, it's just been brilliant. And my other one would be um, just in terms of like how often I hear people talking about it and live tweeting about it would be This Is Us. I feel like that was so anticipated the second, or is this, Jason, is this the third season? This is the third season. Third season, yeah, um, which I I can't stop watching that show, which if it feels like I'm just setting myself up to break my own heart every single week, uh, but it's just, I've never seen any storytelling like that. I feel like it's, I could be wrong here, uh, Jason would know better, but I feel like it's unprecedented in terms of storytelling structure and uh yeah, those would be my two top picks. And This Is Us was actually our show of the year for last year, I should say. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I would I would uh, echo Good Place. I think it's it's one of the few shows where I like both me and my wife. My wife and I are both into it, uh, you know, versus like a lot of shows are just kind of like, ah, I like this, but my spouse doesn't or vice versa. And um, that's one where, you know, we both kind of went into it blind, really knew nothing except that people are talking about it. And that's how I'd recommend everyone go into it blind. What's the new show with Fred Armisen, uh, Jason? The, I've heard several people say the same thing about that one. You know what I'm talking about? Forever? Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Is it any good? Although, you know, I should say here that, you know, hot list does not mean best. Like any, you know, <laughs> things that are on all of these categories, you know, hot does not mean best. Right. I will do my kind of best shows of the, of the year at the end of the year. Um, so, so there is kind of a different, you know, there is kind of a different standard here for, for what we're, what we're kind of, you know, putting on the list. So, um, you know, like I love the good place. Uh, that is one of my favorite shows, but that is also a show that is not, um, certainly one of NBC's you know most watched shows. Yeah, it's not like blowing the doors off. Um, but there, yeah, it's I think each year you you especially do a good job of kind of parsing out the difference and and making room for both of those. You know, here's the the mega hits and here's the ones that uh, should be mega hits, maybe <laughs> in a slightly different world. Um, <clears throat> I I I have a hunch. You and I haven't talked about this, Jason, but was hottest network for drama went to Netflix. I feel like that had to be a tough choice. There's so many good networks for drama right now. There are, and you, there's probably a lot that you could um, that you could put on that list. But we just felt like when when you look at it from a from a volume a perspective, which again, really, you know, everything from Netflix is is about volume these days. But when you just go down that list of of all of the dramas that they have um, on air right now, you know, if you think of Stranger Things, you think of The Crown, you think of something like Mindhunter. Um, and it just keeps going on. Thirteen Reasons Why, um, and it just uh, you know Ozark, um, Black Mirror, uh, so you know all of the Marvel shows. So it's it's just this kind of murderer rows of dramas that that it's hard for any other network to to kind of match that. Um, you know, it's certainly certainly that number. So they they now listen. There's a lot of Netflix shows that kind of come and go. But um, but they have a lot. They have a lot, especially on the drama side this year, that, that really kind of stick and that stand out. Let, let's talk my favorite category in TV each year is hottest binge series. Uh, <laughs> we gave that to Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, which I've not watched yet, although I feel like everyone else around me has. And they've all generally said good things. But it seems like one of those where people do just inhale that show. And then afterward, right. they're like, it's pretty good. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- th- this was a year like I feel like in, in past years where we've done this, that there has been a a kind of no brainer show that everyone's talking about. Maybe it was Stranger Things, maybe it was something else. 
This was a year also that I feel like a, a couple shows could have won that. One thing, um, two things that stood out for 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 Jack Ryan was uh, first off there was this there was this sustained marketing campaign for that show that started with the Super Bowl. They did a Super Bowl ad. I think it was Amazon's Prime's first Super Bowl ad for a series. And that came out six months before the actual show premiered. And uh, and then the other is that it has been years since there has been a new Amazon show that people really talked about and were excited about. And this might really be the first one since Transparent, which was several years ago. And even that audience was very small, I think, compared to the audience that's watching Jack Ryan. So the show is also just indicative of, of Amazon kind of coming back. Um, as as a streaming force, and then you look at something like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which won all those Emmys, and uh, you know they have a lot of other interesting things in the pipeline right now. So I feel like uh, Amazon, which has been kind of pushed off to the side in the last couple years in our excitement over things like Netflix or, or Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, is uh, is is going to be kind of you know putting itself back into that conversation among streaming services. So I felt like. Jack Ryan was was you know good um, was kind of indicative of where of where Amazon's going to be going in the next couple of years. Uh, I don't want to linger too long on just this one category. Uh, we can uh, move on in a minute, but tell us about your pick for TV creator of the year. Yeah, th- this was uh, I was really excited about this one. So because I think that this person um, probably more than anyone else exemplifies just all the 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 different. Kind of twists and turns we've seen in the TV industry in the last couple of years. Um, and that's Kenya Barris, who is the creator of Blackish, which is one of my favorite broadcast shows. Uh, it's spinoff uh, Grownish, which is also a great show, which is on Freeform. But then he has followed in the footsteps of Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes before him. And he has jumped ship and he just signed uh, a month or two ago a very lucrative deal with Netflix. Uh, to make shows exclusively for them. And we are seeing this happen more and more where Netflix and other streaming outlets are trying to snap up the you know the top TV creators. And one one of the the reasons that really kind of like the final straw for for Kenya who you know he's always pushes the envelope on blackish, which has really kind of turned the family comedy on on its head the last couple of years. And he had put together an episode that was supposed to air in February. And in that episode, uh, Dre, the Anthony Anderson character, was reading his year-old son a bedtime story, and he was kind of making up a story. He was incorporating a lot of current events. He was talking about Donald Trump. He was talking about protests uh, during football protests during the national anthem. And uh, there was a, a lot of back and forth about ABC over the content. And ultimately, they both agreed that they could not produce a final version of the episode that would make both sides happy so that they pulled it. And uh, and Kenya told me in our interview that that was really for him. He's like, when, I, when that happened, I, I knew that it was time to move on. He says, I, I, I need to, to be with somebody. I need to be with an outlet who is going to support me creatively, support me financially, is going to stand behind me. I, I, I can't be going back and forth anymore, especially on a broadcast level and all these hurdles you need to clear. So he is, um, you know, Blackish is continuing and 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 Grownish is continuing and, and he'll be involved in that on a very limited basis. But but he is uh, he's going to be with Netflix full time now. 
news. All right, well, let's move on to digital. Uh, this is a category that goes just all over the place. We've got gadgets, we've got apps, we've got uh, one of the weirdest categories every year is hottest digital obsession to Jason's point of hottest does not mean best. Uh, I think last year it was Donald Trump's Twitter feed. <laughs> we argued like love it or hate it. The world is obsessed with it. Uh, and uh, I, even though it's not the biggest category, I'll start there. I thought Instagram stories was a perfect choice for that. That is That has quickly become what I think of with obsession, digital obsession every year is like, what's the thing that you now obsessively check that you that wasn't even part of your life like a year or two ago? Uh, and I certainly think that's one of them. Uh, Sammy, what'd you think of that pick? Or, or do you have an obsession that you're more obsessed with? I think that was a pretty solid one. I, I don't spend much time in Instagram stories because it tends to stress me out. But uh, I think that that was definitely a good pick, especially because I think when Instagram stories first came out, I was like, this is the same thing as Snapchat. No one's going to use Use this. And now I feel like I never hear anybody say, I'm going to Snapchat this. I hear them say, I'm going to make a story out of this. And I think that that was a really solid pick. Uh, Lisa, what you what what'd you think of that? And, and do you have a, a bigger obsession? Boy, uh, no, I, th- I think it was a pretty a pretty good pick. Um, I feel like most people I know are, are creating lots of stories. I haven't taken the leap myself yet, but it, it seems like, uh, you know, every, everybody else has. Uh, I mean, I, I think it was like 400 million users and, and 25 million brands are, are capitalizing on this. So it, it, it seems like a like a logical choice. Uh, you know, the thing that I love about stories is that it, it fills this gap of like, I almost never posted to Instagram because n- not enough gorgeous things happen in my life. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, don't get me wrong, my kids are beautiful, but I don't, I'm not really comfortable posting a lot of pictures of my kids. Um, and so like, I just, if I traveled, I would maybe post one photo of like, look at this beach. I don't know. Like, I'd, <laughs> and so stories kind of filled that gap of like, here's the, some mediocre shots from my vacation, uh, you know, and I try not to flood it, but it just gives you that place where it's like, okay, and it'll be gone a little bit. You don't have to really sweat it. Um, so, you know, I do think that's full the gap. Let's talk Fortnite. Uh, do, do any of you play Fortnite or is Fortnite part of your lives at all? Nope. I have tried to play Fortnite. I love gaming. I uh, spend too much time gaming. But I tried playing Fortnite, and I think I I didn't understand the premise. And I also think that there have been a lot of teens who spent their summers getting really (laughs) damn good at Fortnite. And so I was just floating in the sky for so long and then immediately got murdered. And I was like, wait, guys, I thought you were on my team. Like, I didn't even know that much about, like, I thought we were all in this together. No, somebody just immediately murdered me. And I was like, well, all right. And I tried it a couple more times and it went that way every single time. So it's one of those things where, yes, definitely hot list because everyone's talking about it and everyone's playing it, but I don't see the appeal. Yeah, it is literally the biggest game on earth. Um, It is, you know, it is... An, a massive phenomenon on a level that, geez, I, I'm just, I'm trying to think of another gaming thing. I mean, it, maybe Smash Brothers on Nintendo. I can't think of anything that has had kind of the every kid at school is talking about it thing. It and, makes me kind of think of Pokemon Go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah agree. A like former a hottest phenomenon. digital obsession in the hot list. <laughs> <laughs> Good callback, Lisa. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing, but kind of like uh, Sammy, I, I, I'm a huge gamer, but I do not play online multiplayer. It's like my, my one rule <laughs> is like if there's one thing I want at the end of the day, it's not to have anything to do with strangers on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so yeah, exactly. I I don't I I game so I can get away from people. So when people come up to me and talk to me when I'm gaming, I'm like, this is stressful. I don't want this. Yeah, I just want my own Stardew Valley farm and everyone else <laughs> go exactly. live in their parallel universe. Um, all right, so uh, that one did come up. I should mention it's uh, both game of the year. This tellingly is the first year that no one at Adweek has asked me to help name the game of the year because <laughs> every year they're like, hey, nerd. Um, <laughs> and this year everyone was just like, oh, it's Fortnite. Um, but the uh, Darren Sugg uh, was the creative of the year uh, who, who you know led the creation of Fortnite. Uh, and um, But let's see who else we've got. Um, Lisa, tell us about the game changer of the year. Um, the game changer of the year is actually my personal favorite, uh, Mark Worre. And the reason I think he is so fascinating is because he essentially founded the same company twice or or very similar companies and sold the first one to Amazon for hundreds of millions of dollars and the second one to Walmart for billions of dollars. And it's really all, I feel like the secret is all like behind the scenes on the back end with logistics and, uh, you know, pets.com failed in the early part of the the century because uh, they didn't realize that it would be expensive to ship uh, cat litter and dog food. And so they were losing money on every single order until they ran out of money. Uh, But Mark Laurie was able to figure out that at a certain threshold, I think it was like a $50 minimum order, then, you know, they, they wouldn't be losing money. So orders below that, you had to pay a, you had to pay for shipping, but but above $50, the, the shipping was free. So, and it, it worked. And uh, and Amazon bought Quincy for, uh, for a whole lot of money. And then he went and founded Jet, uh, which was uh, also, similarly, they have all sorts of tricks on the back end where if you buy products that can ship together, that's cheaper for them. So the, the price you pay goes down. And I think if you opt out of returns, you also pay less. Uh, if you pay with a debit card, I think you pay less. So there's all these sort of, of, of tricks. <laughs> and uh, and it, it caught Walmart, Walmart's attention. And so now he's part of Walmart, and I honestly feel like he's probably Walmart's best hope <laughs> against Amazon. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they can beat Amazon, but but he's certainly uh, their their best hope. And you know, he's the one behind Walmart's acquisition strategy of all those direct to consumer brands, so Modcloth, Bonobos, Eloqui. And uh, he's the one who came up with the the tech incubator, and so they're experimenting with all sorts of you know high-tech gadgets and, and things to improve the in-store experience, but, and who knows what else. It's it's sort of secretive. Uh, and he also brought in uh, one of the founders of Rent the Runway to head up the uh, very exclusive text-to-shop service Jet Black. So um, really, um, you know, plunging headfirst into, into digital and, and trying to connect with new consumers. And uh, so he, uh, I feel like he, uh, he certainly fits the bill. I always think it's fascinating that two of my favorite sites to to shop from, Jet and Bonobos, are Walmart-owned but don't feel Walmart-owned. And, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, especially with Jet, were like, are they just going to Walmart this thing? Um, And both are still – I mean, I I still really enjoy them. Yeah, I mean, Jet is is certainly trying to appeal to a a slightly different consumer. I mean, I I think where it really gets interesting is with online grocery, which is uh, a battle no one has really won yet. But there's all sorts of experiments all over the country with different delivery methods. And it's it's really hard because... uh, different regions of the country are so different and, and consumers in cities have different needs than consumers in more rural areas and, and there just isn't a blanket solution that works for online grocery. 
I was talking to a forester analyst who said that just, you know, no one has cracked the nut uh, at a price point that consumers are willing to pay where they still make money. And so, you know, you see Jet experimenting with grocery delivery in New York, but Walmart has a ton of plays all over the country, uh, as does Amazon. So it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. But I think uh, I think that'll be one of the key components in kind of the the battle between Amazon and Walmart. I felt like Jet was like the place to get your uh, Halloween stuff this year. Uh, like it was just such a cleaner marketplace, whereas Amazon's just this gigantic flea market pig pile of of stuff, <laughs> and you're and with questionable you know quality and delivery times. And finally, I just the stuff I needed, I was like, I'm just I'll just go to Jet and get it. It's like 10 bucks, and I'll know that it's actually going to get shipped here and not end up getting routed from like Bangladesh or whatever, you know. And so it's it was interesting. This is the first year where I've actually like kind of leaned on them more than the others. Uh, I did want to briefly hit up one of my other favorite categories, hottest gadget. Uh, just to give a sense of how fast time flies, last year's pick was Snapchat Spectacles. <laughs> 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 and so it's like, I don't know if that what that says about this category, uh, but this year I felt redeemed because I've always been the outsider. It is Google Home uh, this year, which I am in a Google house. We own an Alexa, uh, but we actually prefer the Google. I think we have one of the larger units and then maybe two of the smaller units in different rooms. Uh, Jason, what's your, do you ha- does your house have a platform? Um, we have one of my kids has Alexa, but otherwise we um, we've still managed to keep it it out of out of our home for for the most part because i'm i don't know i still i still have like the i i just feel like there's nothing that i can i really need to ask somebody that i just can't do myself like i don't even really use siri all that much so um so i'd i i've just been resistant to that but but my daughter loves her alexa that's for sure how do you figure out the weather do you just like open the window like a a caveman that i just open that my app up every morning and there it is Ah, man i just went and my kids literally (laughs) every day ask the google home like what the weather's going to be i don't know what they're going to do with this information it's not like they use it to prepare i think they just like having that conversation each morning sammy do you have a voice thing at your house i have my um alexa i don't really use alexa that often i use i use mine to i always want to say i use her and i don't know if that's correct but i use her to play ocean sounds at night uh just because i like to have uh something playing when um I go to bed, but really I forget to use her, although I really should, you know, ask about the weather so that I don't keep walking out in rainstorms. The, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, like how you end up thinking you'll use them and how the commercials tell you you'll use them. I, I should probably call mine like the Fleetwood Mac machine. Uh, because 90, 99% of its life is spent playing the Fleetwood Mac channel on Pandora <laughs> while I like <laughs> while I cook or clean or whatever. That's pretty much all it does. And then every once in a while we ask it the weather. Um, all right. Uh, let's move on to the last list real quick. Publishing hot list. Um, this is one, despite the fact that we literally work in the publishing industry, it's probably the one where I least am, am kind of aware uh, just because – I just don't spend as much time uh, reading other magazines as I probably should. Uh, but our pick was uh, for Magazine of the Year, a very storied uh, choice for us, was The New Yorker. Uh, any big New Yorker fans uh, on the panel here? Uh, I mean, I think I think probably on a previous podcast we've talked about Ronan Farrow specifically, and I think he was he was a big reason and some of his New Yorker colleagues that they are on the list. And, and you know, what has been striking to me that the New Yorker has been so successful at that almost every 
kind of storied legacy magazine is trying to do is to be relevant right now without changing too much of, of, of what it is and what has kind of made it so resilient over these years. And, and The New Yorker has cracked the code for itself specifically. I don't think that any other magazine could probably do it in this way that The New Yorker has. But, um, you know, some of these, some of the ways it has made a name for itself, has made a name for itself, have been in stories that are just part of the, the weekly magazine and are still, you know, just so kind of explosive as, as a lot of Ronan's stories have been about sexual harassment that they have just, you know, uh, they have kind of, you know, demanded that, that, that they, you know, take, um, you take control of kind of the media narrative. And then others have been uh, stories that have come out just kind of throughout the week and that aren't necessarily tied to a particular issue. And I think, you know, you, you, you have that and then you pair that with their, their great covers, which, you know, manage to every week, I think, get people talking and, uh, and they have kind of showed that it's still possible for uh, legacy magazines to still be just as impactful now with so many other media options and so much, so many other things uh, kind of uh, vying for our attention as they were, you know, decades ago when, when the magazine kind of, you know, was first in its heyday. Sammy, you are very active within the, you know, the media community. You know a lot of folks in the industry uh, on Twitter and in real life. What would you say are some of the, whether they're reflected here in this list or, or not, what are some of like the really hot publications uh, where people either really want to work or they can't wait to read every day? What, what comes to mind for you? Well, definitely The New Yorker was one. I instantly thought of Cat Person and uh, how insanely viral that went. Um, and how it spoke. I, I think that a lot of a lot of publications that uh, have been the hot publications have been the ones that do address uh, things like Me Too and sexual harassment, but especially when they go into the gray area, um, which I think is like stories like Cat Person have done. Um, but there's also uh, uh, The Cut was a big one, which I, yeah, was on the hot yeah, list. Sure. Um, I feel like that's been one of the hottest publications. I also feel like um, most stories that I see that are shared on Twitter these days that are like, uh, is, this is the must-read story of the day. This really got to me. A lot of times they're from the cut. I feel like they are really, uh, really doing a fantastic job at telling stories in a new way. Um, yeah, I feel like those would be my two tops. Uh, Lisa, what are some of your picks of either sites that you just really admire or that you can't wait to read or that you see people constantly talking about? Um, I feel like everything that I read is sort of an, an advertising bent. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like TechCrunch, Typically, um, is is kind of first out there with uh, with tech news. Um, it just it sort of gets complicated uh, because uh, you know whether you're you're rushing a story out or um, or trying to find some kind of second day spin on it. But I you know I feel like they're usually they're usually the ones to beat. Um, I wired as well and gadget. Um, those are uh, those are all on my on my daily list. Well, one thing that's been interesting to me as, again, as someone who really likes video games um, and I kind of rely on websites and magazines to keep me up to speed on I have so little free time. I kind of need other people to tell me what I should be doing with it. Um, but the video game industry, coverage industry, went through – has gone through just a lot of like roller coasters in the last few years, namely because it was an entire industry built on reviews. Like everything was reviews, right? And it's like they when I was a kid, it was these thick, thick magazines – 
of just like nothing but reviews. And because so many games were coming out, they reviewed every game. But who cares now? Like nobody cares about reviews. And games are like impossible to review because they're 700 hours long or they never end. Like, you know, it's like Fortnite and, and it gets updated every week. So watching that industry modernize has been really fascinating. Uh, the Escapist uh, it was a publication that had kind of, from what I can see from the outside, had kind of imploded. Uh, and then they they brought back in Russ Pitts, uh, and he kind of rebuilt the team. Um, he, he a veteran video game editor who used to work at Polygon's uh, The Verge. And, uh, I mean, The Verge is, I know, Polygon. Oh, jeez, too many, too many publications. And, uh, and so they've really been kind of building a modern video game publication that addresses social issues, which of course come up a lot ever since Gamergate. You know, you've got a lot of discussion about how women are perceived and straight up abused uh, online by the gaming community and by fandom in general. And so having a site that really addresses a lot of that stuff up front has been nice. So uh, good for them for rebuilding The Escapist. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to check out the hot list. Uh, We've got three of them, three different articles for digital for publishing and for TV on adweek.com. So check those out. Let us know what you thought. Uh, we're Adweek on Twitter. I'm Griner, G-R-I-N-E-R on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you can track down any of us, uh, Lisa Lacey and uh, Sammy Nichols and Jason Lynch. Thanks so much for joining us. It was great having you. Sammy, how was your first podcast experience with us? It was great. I hope to be on it more. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to have you back. Lisa, it was great to have you back on. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me again. All right. Uh, we will uh, we'll be back with a lot more next week. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this episode was produced by Anya Fernando and edited by Lane McGibney. Thank you, Anya. Thank you, Lane. Uh, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us, and they help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we'll be back next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.